City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Design A warm welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminars, now in their 26th year, coming to you from the new Graduate Center of the City University of New York. These seminars offer a rare opportunity to explore with the panelists the realities of working in the theatre. This afternoon is devoted to the Design Seminar, those wonderful people that create the magic that brings live theatre to you. We will learn something about how and why these designers became professionals, their work ethic, and their reasons for being in the theater. We hope that you will enjoy and learn from today's experience. I'm Isabel Stevenson, Chairman of the Board of the American Theater Wing. And so, quickly, let me introduce our moderators for the seminar, Professor and Critic Tish Dates, and Professor of Theater at UCLA, and the working scenic and lighting designer, Neil Peter Jampolis. Tish, would you start right away, please? Yes, thank you. Um, <coughs> to my right is lighting designer, Michael Haboski. Michael has designed several shows for Laurie Anderson, most recently Moby Dick and other stories. In September 1999, he received the Hughes Design Award for Cymbeline at the Delacorte Theater in Central Park and for Margaret Edson's Pulitzer Prize winner, Wit. Next to Michael is the legendary Anne Roth, costume designer for at least a hundred plays on Broadway, in regional theaters, and uh, off-Broadway. Uh, she's been nominated for several Tonys for Crucifer of Blood, The Royal Family, and The House of Blue Leaves. In her spare time, she has designed 70 films, and she won the Oscar for Best Costume Design for The English Patient. Neil. Hi. Uh, on my left, uh, first is uh, David Hayes, one of the very few candidates for the title of Great American Designer. After a brief 35 years as the founding artistic director of the National Theatre of the Deaf, he is now a best-selling writer. And um, before he left our design fraternity, he produced uh, 50 wonderful set or lighting designs on Broadway, uh, some 30 ballets for George Balanchine and others at the New York City Ballet and uh, operas. Uh, along with Robert Edmund Jones, he's the designer most closely associated with the plays of Eugene O'Neill. Okay. Uh, to his left is uh, Abe Jacob, uh, a pioneer in the film of Broadway sound design and one of those rare talents whose best work works best when it goes unremarked. Um, a master of his craft, he's made such sound-heavy musicals as Jesus Christ Superstar and Evita sound just right, while making operas for the New York City Opera sound natural and unamplified. Uh, he's also the best sound designer I've ever worked with. <laughs> um, and to his left is Greg Mee. Uh, if it's a bomb, tear gas, infernos, blinding flashes, and smoke you're looking for, a short trip to the Brooklyn studios of Joachim and Mee will get you that and much more. 
Uh, better yet, visit one of the many theaters using uh, his very special effects. Uh, and uh, whether it's Phantom or Miss Saigon, Jekyll and Hyde or Ragtime, Cirque du Soleil or Inspector Calls, the best in special effects come from these very talented guys. Uh, Tish, why don't you begin? I'd like to begin with a really basic question. Um, what is the purpose, or what are the purposes of each of your design fields? I know some of you do more than one. Um, Anne, could you uh, begin? Uh, what, what are you trying to particularly accomplish in costume design? <laughs> Great opening question. <laughs> um, well, what, what do I want to accomplish is my life. It's my life. Um, I was thinking the other day when I, I'm not working at the moment and the fact that I'm not working, I, I don't have any personal phone calls. The only phone calls I ever get or the only thing that involves me is, has to do with my work. Everything I do is, is work-related. I guess I set it up that way. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Well, what, what, um, when you design a costume, what is the purpose of the costume design? Oh. What, what are you, oh, what are you oh, focusing oh, 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 oh. on accomplishing with oh. the design? Well, that's different. I don't, I never do a costume. It's usually, I never see one person on a stage at one time. Um, I mean, that does happen, of course, but that's a rarity. It's a group of people moving in and out with one another. I do the clothes that the literature, the clothes that for the actor, the support of the actor, mm -hmm. for the character that the literature describes. That's what I try to do without making it a, I'm, I mean, I'm not a big deal. I don't want everybody to say, what a great red dress, or what a, whatever. It's just, that's not my thing. But it just works for the actor. I hope it does. I mean, and that happens in the fitting room, and then it gets on stage, and then da da da, -da the lighting, and the director, and whatnot. It's, it's this collaborative thing. I'm sure you, I mean, we know that. Um, but that's how I start as clothes for the character, whether it's 17th century or now. They are where the underwear comes from and what happens to it when it's taken off. And that's my thing. Is that what, is that what yes, you mean? Yes, yes. That that's, that's, that's terrific. Michael, uh, presumably lighting designer has something uh, more to accomplish than simple illumination. Mm -hmm. I think the, the best way to f that I can think of to phrase it <coughs> is you're trying to make things be seen as honestly as possible in, and in such a way that it supports the story that you're trying to tell. The, you can literally color the light or, or change the shape of the space with light to make it unrecognizable. And say, like I said, uh, a set design could be put up and the lighting design could change it radically. And that's not the goal. The goal is to sort of present what's there in as direct mm. uh, a way as possible to support the story that's being told. Mm. Uh, David, what about scene design, if you could take that? Or do you, if you ha have something further to add about lighting, please do. It's the same thing. Uh, the question, the point <coughs> is, you've got actors, and uh, where are they? Which doesn't necessarily mean the literal place. They're not necessarily in front of the kitchen or the bathroom. 
but it could be uh, a space in the mind, but yeah. locate your, your actors in some space, realistic or not. Sets, lighting essentially does that. As a simple answer. Abe, what about sound design? Well, there are two basic uh, requirements or functions of sound design. Uh, first, as analogous to lighting, it's a simple illumination. It's making sure that every seat in the theater that you're in hears what is being produced either by the actor, the singer, or the musician. So that's the common basic requirement of sound design, to allow everyone in the theater to hear what's being produced. And then on top of that, uh, for a number of productions, it's also doing special effects and creating moods or creating uh, atmosphere or creating uh, an offstage effect that does what the playwright or the composer has asked you to do. But those are the two basic functions of sound, to make everybody aware of what's being done by the performer and to create the effect. Uh, Greg, uh, Abe mentioned special effects, presumably sound special effects. What about the other special effects? Let me go. Let me go to the the basic question first. Uh, we're we're all serving the piece, the the literature or the concept, because sometimes the literature and the concept are quite different. But we're 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 creating that that magic that the 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 overall picture, feeling, emotion. Um, as Ms. Roth said, she doesn't like it when she doesn't go for what a beautiful red dress. Uh, I'm, in, I'm in a part of a, the theater where very often it's something can, can be spectacular and it, and it is eye-catching. But my favorite effects are the things that are essential to the show, that come out of the show, that uh, motivate and are, are, are less spectacular than the, than the big flame ball or the big, uh, big lightning blast. But a director, usually, they probably know more about costumes than they know about special effects. And when you're hired, when they ask you to join, do, they, do you find that they want some they want you to take them somewhere where they never dreamt of going? Do they want to have some excitement, some volcano, something that, I don't mean literally, <laughs> but I mean some... Well, literally. Some extent, <laughs> of course, of course. But, but I mean some... Do they want you to lift them? I'm sure it's the same for you. For some, some yeah, directors yeah. want, they know exactly what they want, and I think they limit themselves by knowing exactly what they want. Well, that's what I'm interested in. Uh, my preferred way of working is when, I, as I'm sure you, yours, when you are part of the initial creative team that, that forms a concept. Uh, Nick Heitner, Bob Crowley, and Natasha Katz on Twelfth Night, right. we all, you know, they wanted they wanted rain, they wanted water, but it wasn't, give me a rainstorm here now. It's how can we, how can we make this uh -huh. moment? Or what kind of rain or what kind of water, mm -hmm. yeah. Right, yeah. That may be a little more specific about what I said. Yes, uh, what the designer, what all of us supply, is 
who the actors are, where are they. But then you can achieve, and every one of us in his way does it, I believe, something specific. And a small example, I did a, a show, uh, and the director, the, the, at this scene, the husband comes home in the middle of the day to find his, am I allowed to say this, at, uh, at, at Cooney, <laughs> to find his wife in bed with uh, somebody, a gentleman. <laughs> as long as he's so, a gentleman. <laughs> I'm being as... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, what the director wanted at this moment was that the front door of the apartment was in the middle of the stage, the bed was on that side, <laughs> the toilet was on that side, the husband or wife, I don't remember, but it seemed important at the time, has gone to the john. So when the husband comes in, one of them is on one side and one of them is on the other. They can't get together. The husband's in the middle. The scene, the action, the spine of the scene, as he would say, is he looks one way, he looks the other. They cannot get together to face him as a group. Yeah. So not only is it where you are, what the apartment's like, but you've set up what is called the architecture of the action. Mm-hmm. You've, been, you, you've uh, put right. something there which very specifically moves the play in an in a exact direction at that moment. Yeah, and actually, I, th- I think design as a whole, it's <coughs> kind of a, a cu- the cumulative effect of a whole series of moments like that make the entire story appear inevitable. And I think that's what the most ex- successful design is about, is when a, when a whole series of those are strung together and the whole evening sort of just makes sense that way. Where do you think the impetus for that comes from? Does it come directly mm-hmm. from the play or filtered through the director? And what would you say is, for all of you, is your ideal relationship with a director? How much do you want from him or her? About 15 years ago, I was invited to have that very discussion at Juilliard with students, young, very impressionable kids. And I, at that time, said that I, that that my main thing was to support the director, to help him realize his dreams or his vision. And I have, I'm still getting um, guff from that. <laughs> uh, do you understand why I, I am? Isn't that funny? I didn't. For years I didn't understand why that would be an, a, a point of argument. Do you? Yes, you I must. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not necessarily. Were, were people saying that they were it saying should be the playwright? Like, Are you crazy? No, 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 no. They were saying that I must get what I want first. No, I understand <coughs> it because it's the question of whether we are artists or artists of occasion. I don't see no, I think it. I think we're hired no, to serve something else. But you're not individual else. artists. The, you just mentioned collaboration, I, and, yes. and the <coughs> theater is. A collaborative art. I mean, it sounds like it, and it is a cliche, but it's absolutely true. A, one can't work or shouldn't work without the other, I think. I think you'd agree to that, mm-hmm. wouldn't you? Well, I don't think any well, of us can do anything without the other. No, right. yeah. no we know that. Yeah. We have changes, I think, that have occurred, in, in, in on, especially on Broadway over the last 20 years, and mm-hmm. that we've gone through cycles. Uh, in the, from the 70s through the 80s, it seemed to be the director was the one in charge. Was It was the director's medium because uh, we had the star director choreographers, especially for musicals, who had their vision and created the entire show based on what they thought uh, the concept of that particular piece should be. And then since that time, we have now gone back to what I call the management 
mm -hmm. direction or production <laughs> yeah. of theater, where it's r basically controlled by the producer and the manager. So it's their idea, and everybody works to what either their budget or their idea of that production should be. But in any event, the design team really is a, an extension of the authors and the composers as well as the director, and it all needs to work together. And the best shows that I've been involved with are where, especially sound, was brought in as early as uh, the time when the lighting and, and scenery uh, people were brought in, because working together with everyone, you eliminate what I think is the biggest problem in working in the theater, and that's surprise. Uh, that's the one when thing you that really happen? can't define. When everybody is brought in together, who comes first and then well, falls into I, place? I, I find that it's usually scenery, because that's what develops and, and, dr and drives the entire production. Uh, then costumes, because that's also part of it. But lighting and sound, I think, are as important as, uh, as those two. If you're trying to do an event or a production that is uh, a real collaborative effort where everyone works together and you have a, a seamless uh, display of all of the talents involved. What sort of surprises have you encountered when that didn't happen? Simple things such as the sound designer not being hired until after the show is in rehearsal or ready to start into the theater. And uh, we find that uh, uh, the particular theater that you're in, the scenery, has totally taken over the proscenium arch, so there's no place simply for simply putting loudspeakers. So you have to compromise and put them someplace else, which leads to either a, a bad sound design or compromising the uh, scenic designer's intention. Things of that sort. If that's all known in advance, you can eliminate all of that, or as working with Neil, we've hidden things in the scenery so it becomes invisible and works. Oh. That kind of surprise uh, that you have at the last minute that's impossible to, to deal with. Yeah, very often it's a real estate question. Uh, the first person to get there claims real estate and is very reluctant to give it up. Um, the, but if, as you say, everyone is there from the beginning, once a piece of scenery is built, it, you, it's very expensive to go rework it and make space for something else. If, if you were there at the beginning, it's the same price. So why not be there from the beginning? Um, I'd like to touch something that, a, your question about um, sound special effects, um, which relates to the collaboration. Effects work best when they are a sequence and an overlay of elements. If I just put a flame or, a f or explosion on stage without the support from the sound department, without the lighting level coming down so that it can, can it make its statement, it, uh, it doesn't work. When you and, and the eye and the mind of the audience is not pulled in and does not believe. Mm. Uh, but when you start overlaying, overlaying elements, you start creating a whole, whole piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Anne's work is seen by the audience immediately. A, a lighting, other than special effects, is not seen by the audience. The effect that you get is something that happens, but the audience does not know that. Well, what happens is every one of us is clever enough to manipulate this or we wouldn't be sitting here. And I worked with a lighting designer once who was no one here, who was trying to make a name for himself, 
and he did, and it hasn't worked much since. Uh, and he did what he had to do to please uh, everyone to uh, illuminate the actors. And then he spent the rest of his time and budget doing special effects which called, a, which called attention to his skill, but had nothing to do with uh, giving the stage a quality, uh, helping the scenery to create the uh, milieu which was, it was intended to do, and so forth. We've worked with directors who troubled that someone might think it was the actor's skill rather than theirs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could do, uh, there was a, 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 a chap I worked with who, well known at the time, He's not alive anymore, poor fellow. Uh, who uh, had a great deal of incidental music. And he would have the actors touch each other, ping, just at the moment when there was a musical effect. Now, this clearly couldn't be the actor's invention. It must have been the director's. So the, the, the show was full of things which could only be credited to the director. Sure. And we all can do these things. <laughs> and uh, it, it gets to be what you call survival time. People bail out, the show's going down the tubes, they might as well have their show, their part of the show look well. I thought and it was that's called just miserable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where do you learn lighting? Excuse me? Where does one learn lighting? Well, um, I, I'm special effects here, and I think we have some lighting designers <laughs> who will answer that question. Well, Michael, where did you <coughs> You sort of learn it by doing. I mean, it, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it sounds silly to say, but I, you, you, ju you just go into a theater and turn the lights off and get your hands on the things and work with them. And you just keep doing that for years and years and years and years until you start to understand a little bit about how a light or a kind of light makes a space behave. And then you just try to start adding all that together in, in order to be able to control kind of an environment. Remember that awful taste in your mouth in summer stock? <laughs> when the sun's coming up and you still got 70 units to focus. <laughs> it's sad. <laughs> it's That's sad. when we all smoked. <laughs> no, actually, I, w I will say that one of the best uh, kind of learning uh, environments that I've ever been in is, is being on tour with dance companies. I mean, I, I spent yeah. six or seven years touring all over the world with Mark Morris's company and American Ballroom Theater and a couple of other companies. Mm. And it's when you have to walk into a room that you've never seen mm. before and with a group of people you've never seen before and actually make, thing ha make something happen very quickly. Uh, it's just you, ha you have to make decisions very quickly and you have to understand what's important about what it is you're doing and chuck everything else that's not important. If the going gets really tough, then if there's one thing you have to convey, then that's the thing you go for. And if you have a little bit more time, then you can you know, make it a little more bit more. More choices become more confusing. Right. You discover the essence of the, what of it is you're the doing. piece yeah. and of the design. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's, it's, I think it's a good training ground, and everybody that I've, and every other lighting designer that has been in that same situation is also a big champion of it that I've found because it's, you, you, it's not only kind of a challenge, but it's a lot of fun too. Touring. Yeah. Mm -hmm. With trucks? Uh, no, usually, usually walking off the plane into somebody else's building and trying to make their equipment. Their do. stuff. Yeah. Oh, Lord. And uh, in, in other countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the best, I mean, yeah, I mean the, best, the best example I can give is I was on tour in uh, Taiwan once, and we missed our connection, and we checked into the hotel, and there was a big earthquake, and we went to the theater, and I walked in, <laughs> and it was very dark, and it... I looked around and people were hanging the lights on the wrong pipes mm -hmm. and it, things were a big mess mm -hmm. and you just kind of look around mm -hmm. and you think, I could be in New York, it doesn't matter where I am. So right, it's <laughs> <laughs> that's and funny. Then, then you just try to like <laughs> start, start sorting it out and just kind of 
getting rid of the things that are not going to work and just you know keeping it simple and you kind of go ahead. <laughs> the uh, it, sound design uh, has always been basically something that you just pick up and do. Fortunately, in the last mm -hmm. 10 to 12 years, many of the universities have established fine sound design, sound operating uh, departments as long <coughs> as their other uh, design schools. Uh, and it's very important to start out there, but that's not the end. You really have to, as we all, I think, agree, go out and actually do it and start in regional theaters, start in community theaters, start um, just being involved in, in, in the sound of that production and, and move on. And then uh, I also always tell people, how did you get started? And what would I do is find a designer, a sound designer, wherever, and, and bother them, call them all the time. And yeah. eventually something will happen where I'll say, come down and uh, give me a hand doing this particular thing. And I think there are maybe 10 or 12 people that are working now that have done that to me over mm -hmm. the years. And I'm very, very, very glad to have that opportunity to bring them along. Um, about the road, I think it's unfortunate that uh, touring companies today, professional touring companies, uh, we no longer really have what used to be called bus and truck tours, where you would go in at 8 o'clock in the morning and do a show at 8 o'clock that evening uh, with simple scenery, simple lighting, and, and very minimal sound equipment. It was a great spot to learn because the expectations weren't as high as they were for doing a Broadway show in that eight-hour period. Uh, today, bus and trucks uh, basically don't exist because they're trying to recreate as much as possible the effects and the scenery and the lighting of, uh, of the Broadway or the national tour. So it's not a learning experience anymore. The audiences are demanding for the prices they have to pay for tickets um, what they would see in, in first-class national tours. But it's still a good space to, a place to learn. But if you went to, let's say, southern Tunisia, as I have done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. Um, and the... And the electricity was less, and you have this truck with your stuff on it. Do you carry generators and...? That's, again, one of the things that you should know about so you don't have surprises, as, we, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, if you've properly advanced and you've done the collaboration with all of the people that are telling you to go to... Uh, southern Tunisia, uh, you would know, I would hope, what th that yes, it's going to be iffy if there's electricity available and we have to bring along transformers or uh, uh, generators or things of that sort in order to do this particular show. Do you guys do that? We try to, uh, if we get the yeah. opportunity. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the, the advance work is very important, but sometimes, no matter what they tell you, it's like you, right, you, you right, want right. to so, mm -hmm. Well, mm -hmm. apart from the experience, it's the one has gotten and no longer exists in in every aspect of theater now, where do you find your trade? Where is the best way to find it? Are you teaching it? Do you have it in the universities? Are there courses in this, or are there special schools for it? Where do you, where do you start? Well, in, in my university, uh, yes, there are courses, although um, I, I often frighten my students by telling them that designers are born and not trained. That, uh, that I hope that my function as a teacher is to identify those students who have the real potential for going uh, further, not just the artistic talent, but the temperamental talent and, the, and the, the fortitude, if you will, to stay with what it takes to become a designer and to strengthen those traits and to develop those skills that need more training. But to give people that divine spark that makes you want to be a theater designer um, I don't know how to do it from, from nothing. 
But if you, if you have that and that's what you want, there are several, many, fine schools with good people teaching who will at least give you the rudiments of the trade. Yeah, the and, discipline. And the right, discipline. Sure. And also enough, uh, I would hope, anecdotal information that, you, that to sustain your interest and to make you want to go and collect a bunch of war stories on your own. David, I see you smiling. I do sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> even, uh, even after all these years in the theater, I sometimes smile. The, uh, you know, I, I, as an old guy, and, and, not, and, and with a new career, but looking back, you can complain about this or that, and you see things that have changed. The level of light, talking about Tunisia, the level of light that is required on stage now is what, about 1.75 times as much as it was when we started, Neil? At least. Almost At least. twice as much light, or More. else people say they can't see the actors. What's the sound level over the last 30 years? At, well, it's absolutely twice. increased simply because everybody is used to their home music systems or Walkman earphones, and so no longer do we have the imagination which tells you what a voice sounds like. It's what you've heard stored on CDs, and so it's got to sound like that recording are, in your living uh, room. Yeah, and many actors are not expected to speak. To produce. To produce. Yeah, thank film and television for that. Yeah, there's yeah. also a bizarre you can, level. Uh, yeah. Uh, in the old days, they say, well, I can't see the act. I can't hear him because I can't see him. But now they wouldn't see him at all. I mean, they'd just see blackness or something. And, uh, okay, we complain about that. I don't know if it's worth complaining about. We say there are no apprentices anymore. You may be looking at the uh, youngest apprentice, youngest or oldest. I, have, as yeah. <laughs> I did the work in drawings for the mousetrap as an apprentice. I don't know if that word is still in the English language. And every kid, I'm talking about the, the theater of the deaf. The one night stand, wonderful experience. But everyone wanted to work for money right away, which is not so terrible. But no one had this idea that you, had to, that you could train. Well, but a and lot yet, of And there's people. wonderful things happening around town, Broadway. I tell beautiful stuff. kids, if you, you go to some guy or, or some designer and say, I'll work for you for six weeks for nothing. If you like me, pay me after that. And I think that works. Except the union can get after you. I'm, I'm not against the union. I tried that with, with, with people. Well, I don't mean drafting, or, and I don't mean painting or drawing for me. I mean... Getting coffee is not such a bad thing to absolutely. do. Absolutely. Hang around a bit. Absolutely. And uh, there's a lot to do at my place. A Just lot. get a feel of what it is. How many friends do you have? I have a lot. So what is a lot? Well, it depends what I'm doing. Last year I did... I had two... Three, last year, uh, and they work very hard. Their hours are long. They work very hard. And Where did they come uh, from? To you? How did, you, how did they come to you? Oh, I get phone calls every other day. They find their way. I had a phone call this morning from oh, someone who yeah, wanted a lot to of people come an intern or apprentice on a production. Mm -hmm. did, did did we all work as? As apprentices? Mm -hmm. Did we all uh, No, I got paid right off. Did you? Was mm -hmm. that for painting scenery or was that mm -hmm. for doing That's mm -hmm. how you started in the theater, right? Mm -hmm. You were painting scenery? Mm -hmm. How did you parlay that into a career as a, as a costume designer? Well, the, the designer had a heart attack. <coughs> and they were hard up for somebody to do the dirty work. And, and you were there? There I was. Yeah. And thrilled. And uh, I, I just thought... It was one of. I, I would like to go back to discussing this um, this thing about maintaining your 
your inner burning desire to be a designer and servicing <coughs> the collaborative essence. Please because do. I know I saw your face go funny when I was talking about that. And I, what I meant was that I, I do think it's a great feeling to always be I work with Mike Nichols a lot, and we, I would have to say we never see eye to eye, and yet we've worked together for 33 years. And if I can make him be less safe, because I tend to be more, more, and he tends to be tasteful, <laughs> and we, and now it's a joke between us. But that's the best thing, to have that un true understanding of, of what his shortcomings, what's my shortcomings. But meeting in the middle isn't the right answer. The middle is the lousy answer. And would you prefer the d director to be out ahead of you or behind you in that respect? Safer or more? Well, I'd like to work with eight directors, some out and some mm -hmm. back. But I think out. Yeah, tasteful is not a word I'm crazy about. <laughs> How do you handle it when director or producer starts interfering? I mean, how do you <laughs> Well, <laughs> about things they really don't know much about or or you're sure if they would just listen or let you do what you want to that the show would be better. I mean, do you have examples of dealing with that uh, presumably tactfully or at least successfully? They're still alive, so I... <laughs> <laughs> you didn't murder them. <laughs> there are certain composers that I've worked with that certainly believe that the loudest thing on stage should be the flute and oboe. So uh, you get to that point where they come to you at the sound console and tell your engineer to bring up the band, bring up the band, because that's the only way it's going to be exciting for the audience. And if the lyricist comes over and says he has to hear the words, then you have that discussion going on. And then the director wants to make sure that uh, they're hearing all of the lines. Uh, and the producer says, don't make it that loud, it's bothering people. So I think the best, uh, you know, the sound designer anyway has to be the diplomat oh, that wow. handles be all those uh, uh, different uh, inputs to you and uh, at the same time, you know, maintain the balance and then do what I feel or any sound designer feels is the right thing to do for the piece that you're working on. And tell them all that you did what they asked you. Because sound is the most subjective, I think, of the design <laughs> elements in the theater, um, you can get away with that a little bit more than I want a red dress and you say, well, that is red, but it's blue. You can't, you can't really make that distinction. But sound, you can because you can, everybody hears differently and that's, that's the basic difference in all of the work that we do. Um, but it is a matter of, of finding out who, again, is in charge. And if it's the producer or the manager or the director oh. or the composer. Who is that in charge? Depends on the show. It depends on who so the individual that, is. Sometimes it, it is the director and the uh, How? I mean, if the director doesn't do it, who's going to, I mean, it, the producer doesn't. Sometimes, Sometimes the director is living in fear of the producer. We've been through the director. That. The director is hired by the producer, is the same as all of us, and so he answers to him and for what he wants. But are you hired by the producer or yes, the director? Yes, and, and at the final, you may be re recommended or requested by an individual director or a composer, but you are hired by the producer and the manager. That's the. Do you audition? I don't know. Is there such a thing? How how do they decide that you, for you, and what get a job? Mm -hmm. 
that you're that you're going to be the well, guy. I think at this point you people know your work, I, and so yeah. yes. how do they you, know you're, that you're your, your ideas past. are the same as theirs? That you see the production as a whole as they see it. Ooh. It's a gamble. <laughs> That's heavy. <laughs> you know, I've had several experiences where I've met on, on the big moment was you can't get the job unless you meet and talk to so and so. In some cases, it's a director that I've never met. In some cases, it's a producer. And in some case, uh, cases, in one case, it was the widow of the playwright. Oh, yes. Who controlled the rights. And in none of those cases did I actually discuss the work at hand. I had them to my apartment. I served them tea or drinks, according to their wont. We talked about everything in the world I could think to talk about of interest to them apart from the play at hand. In all cases, the, in these three cases, I got the job. And it was because once, once you enter into this, it's a kind of a marriage. You're going to go through the next X number of weeks or months with people, and you want them to be people who you do not detest on sight and who you have confidence will deliver the goods. But without showing a portfolio or auditioning or saying, well, we have to do it this way. That, in fact, is very dangerous because you may feed into some preconception that they have and that will set off an alarm bell. It's much better to ease into those things after you're on board. That is dead right. Sorry for answering. No, no, that's yeah. not <laughs> No, I think it is like a little tap dance audition that you do for them, and that I think is rotten. I think it's really difficult. But basically, you, uh, no matter how very grave or serious it is, basically it is if you share the same sense of humor and love mm -hmm. for the piece. Uh, I, if you get that, you can't. You are not destructive. Well, I think that might be one of the good things that come out of meeting somebody who has the power in whatever production you're doing is to have that discussion, not about the exact technical work that you do, but what your feeling is towards the piece and how you would get along and relate to all of them involved. And that certainly makes it a, a better collaboration no matter what you do uh, physically or technically. Um, the uh, I, I've met... I've had to go and see people twice, I think, in my career of, of, to get the job. And it was merely a matter of talking to them, saying hello, and how we related to one another rather than, yeah. rather than the work we did. How long ago was that? I, my first Broadway show was in 1970, which was Jesus Christ Superstar. Which was it? Jesus Christ Superstar. I wasn't the original designer. I happened to be in town. They were having problems technically, and uh, I came in and took it over. But uh, the first show from scratch was uh, shortly thereafter, Pippin, with... Uh, Bob Fosse. All of you have credit so that they can say, well, look, you, they did such and such a thing. But what about the young person who is starting, perhaps then one or two things off or off, off Broadway? How do they get the job? Off Broadway for sound is as important if, and as uh, sometimes more technically involved than a Broadway show. Right, so but not it's having theater. been seen. They haven't the credits where they haven't the, the list of Then you start by talking to a designer and coming in and working with them on something. Again, as we've talked about, you know, working as an intern or an apprentice and, and, and working along, it's, it's, it's very, very but important. But don't you honestly think that, I mean, I did loads of off-Broadway shows and I'm still working with those people. 
Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. Build those, and they get married, and their ex-wives, <laughs> and their husbands. I still, that's the basis of my, of who I work with. It's the relationships that you build. Mm -hmm. I was going to say that if there is some distrust or worry with uh, a director or, I mean, I, I only deal with the directors. I, I would say, I would let him feel that I wouldn't let him be uh, dismayed on stage. If he lets me show it to them and then he hates it, I'll change it. I, I've done that a million times. You're not locked in. We can have anything we want in this world. Anything. Somebody got to pay for it, uh -huh. but we got. To, <laughs> but we can, and I think that we should. I mean, I like to let them feel that this is um, that they can have the, and they can have it all. There's no reason to to not. Do you feel that way? If you're not working together and enjoying the process, yeah. Why are you doing it? I mean, I'm sure we have all been on shows where we did not enjoy the process, oh, but... Uh, but there's something about economics here. That's no, no, we're not. We don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the difference between it being a director's, being the director in charge where the money and the economics are not as vital as it is when you're the producer who is in charge and money becomes the bottom line well, for all that you No, but if, that, if he says the, the costumes I want, the long dress that goes up the stairs, and, exactly. and Anne knows that the long dress is going to trip the actor going up the stairs, but he insists upon it, and it's wrong, then there has to be another dress put in place. And therefore, it is the economics, and therefore I would think it is your responsibility to say, if he doesn't know, but look, I'll show you how this dress will trip you. Sure, and you can make her a version out of an old piece of muslin and let her and go there at the end of the rehearsal day and, and rehearse with it. And you say, see, it works, or see, it doesn't work, or maybe it's a foot too long, or, you know, you work with them. You're, that's what I do. There's, you don't just go away and make a dress and say, here you are, see you in New Haven. <laughs> It's, it's part of the process to be there and to worry about it. And if uh, the director says, get that thing off the stage right now, she's going to fall, I say, okay, but we tried. I think that's one of the big responsibilities of a designer is to in involve the director in, in things, in something they may not to share your knowledge with them, convey your knowledge to them. This is, you know, you said this, this is what it means. Come here, let's talk about this, let's work with this, let's play with this, let's have fun with it. Yeah. And then you together come up with what's going to be the right thing. Well, but I agree that, that if, if you fail to work with your director, there is a big failure Absolutely. there. And there's an unhappy situation. And uh, this should be sensed uh, as the as the production team assembles. When you have to go to the producer uh, because of a conflict, that's, that's misery. But odd things happen. Let's say you're hired as the designer for a repertory company. Mm -hmm. And you're given the budget for the entire season. Mm -hmm. And the producer mm -hmm. says to you, Dave, we've got six plays to put on. Here's the amount of money you can spend. But you've got six different directors. Yes. <laughs> now comes to you're working well with each with each director, 
Uh, you may not exactly be his choice. Maybe he isn't thrilled. But because of the repertory situation, it's good to have one set designer. E e even better to have one lighting Light. designer. But a director wants something that's out of the budget. You've got to go to the producer. But this is understood beforehand. But if the producer doesn't back you up, and you're the villain, mm -hmm. because you won't let this director spend money. So why can't you bad. say, come on, you and I, director, are going to go see the producer. Let's ask him to come down here and discuss this with us. Yeah. No, because you we're say all that. in this you mud say that, bath together. You say that, but does the producer back you up? Absolutely. Does he say uh, to the director, look, I gave this uh, guy a budget, and uh, I can't. Well, you know, all these producers have financial managers. Let them go to work. Let them come in and help you. But it might involve more taste than the financial manager has. No, but <laughs> I mean, they can't just give you the money for a six-season production and walk away. Get but back they, here and go to work. Do. Well, yeah, when I used to work for New York City Opera, you'd go home after a long rehearsal. And the financial director would, director would call you about something he didn't like about the lighting. The stage director would call you about something he didn't like about the costumes, which you weren't even doing. And the overall director would call you about uh, the fact that the wheels are squeaking on something. I mean, everybody did everything. Yes. But it was kind of fun. Yes, absolutely. Because you all wanted the same thing. You're all talking past us. Is it not so today? Is it not the same way? I don't think the human race has improved in an awful lot. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, two legs, two ears, two eyes. Yeah. And people, you know, I worked for Balanchine all of those years, and at the initial, and he was, of course, the boss. Absolutely. And he had a fabulous, all right, but the initial impulse came from Lincoln Kirstein, who, in a sense, was the producer. He's yeah. the one who'd call you and say, I want you to do this and that, come on down, I've got an idea. He'd pull out these wonderful old books mm -hmm. and says, why don't we do it like a Wedgwood plate or something yep. like that? And then you'd say, uh, gee, does George know about this? And you'd say, oh, that's George, we always agree. So you'd do some sketches or a model, and George would, Mr. B would come in, and he always liked it. Well, unless he hated it. But I mean, it wasn't because of the, de the, uh, the odd way that it right. started, through I, Lincoln's I vision know. and Lincoln's taste, which was extraordinary. Yeah. I, I think what you are saying here, though, they're all creative, and yet you're all dealing with somebody that is not, is creative, but not in the same sense. You're talking about dealing with the reality of the person that is in charge of the show. Well, everybody, mm -hmm. to, to get along, That's is the idea. manipulative and, and thinks they're the greatest manipulator in the world, but all we forget is that people aren't as stupid as we think they are. So you just have to be careful as you go along. Do, does ever, anyone feel that that producers now are less creative than before? Producers. Does anyone remember a, go a golden age that I seem to have missed when the producers were creative pe really creative people and you could rely on their taste? At least in, in, in the area that I deal with, production today is more about spectacle and large and, uh, uh, and big rather than about content. And the producers, in the 20 years ago, uh, were able to give you a, certainly a show that brought people in and won awards and uh, uh, was very successful without going to the extent of spectacle. So uh, the difference today is that you have to be about spectacle rather than, than about content, with some mm. exceptions, of course. But right. the uh, um, bigger is what's happening today, whether that's better or not, uh, or whether it's justified by what 
ticket prices are. Uh, you, the audience needs to come in to see something that they can't see elsewhere. And live theater is something you can't see elsewhere. It has to be uh, in a room uh, with a collaborative group of people in the audience who are something you don't have in your living room. And so that's why theater is different. But uh, as far as the spectacle is concerned, that's where it's gone today. And uh, we hope it might get back to a more middle ground later on. Although sometimes I think people are sort of thirsting for just the opposite. I mean, I, I know I, I think I was lucky to be able to work on something like Wit, but it's it, yeah. the reason people come to see that mm -hmm. I think is because there's actually something going on that touches people, and there's nothing spectacular visually about the whole thing. It just it's there in front of you, and you watch a woman go through an experience, and that's I think. Uh, and it's some, but it is somebody live, and it's there, and it's, right. it's different. Uh, mm -hmm. As I said, there are exceptions other than to what right. what the spectacle is of. of but but it's it's kind of weird because I think when when there is something that's like that, people kind of sit up a little bit because they everybody knows that it's the trend that's happened mm -hmm. exactly as mm -hmm. you're describing. But I think they're kind of looking for something that's a little mm -hmm. bit more than that. Or would the revivals of some of the plays that are on Broadway today, as good as they are, be the same? if they were done without the spectacle of moving scenery and moving lights and heavy sound effects, you know. Um, like what? Well, there are a number of plays that have, re have, a number of revivals that have been on Broadway where the scenery is, is much more than it was when the show was originally done. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, much more. <laughs> much more. Um, Rainmaker, for example, has never been produced with rain before, to my knowledge, other than this production. It was always, here comes the rain, here comes the rain, uh -huh. curtain. Uh, <laughs> makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe a, a point you brought up earlier was about the audience expectation from their right. exposure to film and television mm -hmm. and attention span. I think it's a real, a real, and a, a real issue, and I think it has some bad effects on uh, the mm -hmm. the content of what we see on Broadway. We used to do a lot of three-act plays. Yeah, with more yeah. actors. With more actors, indeed. Remember those seven guys who came up from uh, the green, who came up from the cellar in yes, ours? absolutely. Who could afford that? And now they have wet suits. <laughs> <laughs> there were more of everything than in other shows. We were talking about the revivals that are being done today. <coughs> there were larger casts, lar larger pieces in the orchestra, larger everything in the original shows, and many times that in the show that's being done today. And it could survive that, and you can't afford it today. Isabel, can I come back to say something that was uh, initially uh, part of this? I think young people who are who aspiring people who are watching this, there is no such thing as nothing when we're talking about sets and lighting and costumes. No costume, what? A naked person makes the strongest costume statement you can possibly make. Black velours are not nothing. It's a terribly strong statement. Uh, lighting, it's a little more subtle, but the same thing. Uh, it's a little more involved, but the same thing uh, applies. Well, or just, just bare lighting. is not no lighting. It's a strong statement. Everything we do is that. Everything must be considered in that way. Our town, seamless, is a very big scenic job in terms of touching up the back walls, putting just the brooms in the right places, the this in the right places, the 
Ray Solvi did it originally in 1937, I don't know. Uh, I did one. I did two. Complicated job of doing no scenery and the illusion in a sense of no light, but then how it changes into there being some light, but never too much. Uh, nothing is all, there's no such thing as nothing. We deal with everything. We treat everything. There's and yet a designer is not going to win a Tony Award for appreciating that something that looks like nothing but isn't uh, is the best thing for the show. Well, you just have to get over the idea that uh, <laughs> exactly. Tony's, our Tony Award judges are the best judges of uh, what we do. Or that you're it's doing it for that reason. Our job is to or do that you're doing it for Absolutely. Or yeah. that you're doing it for the Tony, absolutely. But yeah. in sound, sometimes the absence of sound is actually part of the design, yes. uh, and there's nothing. Uh, if I may, uh, when we opened the original company of a chorus line at the Schubert Theater here in New York, um, that show was done without body microphones on the, uh, on the performers, and it was uh, part of the set with the five microphones across the front of the stage, the long tube shotgun microphones that the director, Michael Bennett, staged the people to every once in a while so you could go and hear them, and they were lit that way. But during the show, uh, there was the part called Paul's Monologue, which was the one boy on stage going through his past life talking to the director out in the back. Um, it's a very quiet moment in the show. Um, it follows uh, Music in the Mirror, the big Cassie dance number. It became a little difficult to hear him uh, because of both the style of delivery as well as the quietness of the moment. And we went through a number of discussions. Are we going to put a microphone on him for this? Or, and I realized that the problem was we were, it was the middle of summer here in New York, and the air conditioning in the Schubert Theater was um, a little noisy, to say the least. So the design was that during the applause for music in the mirror, the engineer went and shut off the fans in the air conditioning. So you didn't hear them go off because there was the applause. As it got quieter in the theater, you heard him. It also got a little warmer, so the audience became a little bit more uncomfortable, this, which was the feeling that you were trying to get from the delivery of the lines. At the end of the monologue, the applause, they went into the tap combination, the fans and the air conditioning came back on. So that was sound design. That was the absence of sound wow. being part of the design for a chorus line. Who, who was the director? Michael Bennett. Michael Bennett. Yes, but I know Michael Bennett, but who, who discovered that and who Well, uh, that was part of my, that, that's what I did. I mean, I went and I said, Michael, if we turn off the air conditioning, it'll be quieter in here and you might be able to hear him well enough. Mm -hmm. We said, try it. And that's, that's what we did. How did you start that? How did you to begin working with Michael on that, for example, and to get that effect? Well, uh, it was just part of the show. We were in the room. We weren't using microphones, and it was noisy. And as I was walking around the theater uh, during rehearsals, uh, I, I just heard the fact that there was a lot of noise coming from the air conditioning vents. And it was just a simple thought of turning it off um, that, that did that work. And it, was, it was just one of the nice moments that you come by yeah. in doing that's something. One of the but as you mentioned, the absence of costumes, about. the absence of lights and scenery, Chorus Line was a good example of a black box Absolutely. lit by, by one light. But um, uh, that's the design work. That, that, that leads me into a, into a question I'd love to have some responses on. Uh, you say that the shows now are about spectacle, and they get bigger, and they get fuller, and then there's more stuff like rain in a play that never had rain before. And yet, if you go to uh, the opera house, and I will leave out the Metropolitan Opera, which it marches to its own drum, um, you're likely to find an opera that would have had dozens of sets and, uh, and tremendous spectacle 50 years ago 
being done with a single chair in an immense open space, apparently undesigned. And uh, so here is, here is a, one art form being paired to its essence, while another one is getting perhaps overstuffed. Uh, anybody have any thoughts on that? It's very interesting. Neil, the, my only comment is, is that the opera has content and doesn't need spectacle. <laughs> <laughs> and got it, got it in one, I think. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the difference. Not that the spectacle on Broadway is bad. I mean, some of the work that's being done, is, it, it amazes me how well and how good and how great it looks. But I'm just going back to saying that that's not the only thing you need to make theater vital. We discussed Encore, the series that's being done in New York, in which you're going right to the core of, of the, the show itself and how well it works. It's a concert form. It's not a Broadway production. But in discussing it and taking really what is the heart of it, editing out all of the rest of it, it becomes a very strong piece. Yeah, well, yeah. certainly the current yeah. Chicago yeah. has probably a quarter of a million dollars less scenery than the original one did. The strength of a more minimalist approach. And has run three times as long. Yeah. Well, you've got the two sides. You've got the, the great big spectacle, which says, I'm getting my money's worth, and you're getting the other, which is a little nugget. Abe, is it the mm. emphasis on spectacle that you have been talking about? Um, that has produced a situation where we have Tony Awards in scenery, costume, and lighting, and because, is it because sound design is less obtrusive and it doesn't involve spectacle that we have no Tony in sound? Well, I think there are a number of reasons that there are no, there's no recognition that way, but um, sound, for the most part, has been the, the last child in the, uh, in the family, and um, hasn't been thought of as a design element uh, for a long time. And I am hopeful that, that that will change in the future. I think, it's, it, I think the recognition of the design work that the whole team does um, I is important. Uh, and I know that uh, there are a number of reasons why it hasn't happened, but I'm hopeful that in the future there might be a change. Mm -hmm. I think there's more that has to be said on that, but we have to stop for a minute. And everybody takes a deep breath. and and stretches and, and does whatever they have to do and comes right back down to their seats and continue with this discussion. Because I think it's a most important and interesting one on the American Theatre Wing seminars. And so we'll come back to the designers. an hour already. This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. Welcome back to the American Theatre Wing Seminar on Working in the Theatre. Before we return to our gifted panelists, I would like to point out to you that the Wing is more than a sponsor of seminars and more than our famous Tony Awards. This is for granted for excellence in the theatre. But we are an organization whose year-round programs are dedicated to serving the theater and the community with the goal of developing new audiences. And to achieve that goal, we have created audience development programs for students, like our introduction to Broadway, which began seven years ago and has enabled almost 80,000 New York City high school students to attend a Broadway show. 
and for many of them, for the very first time. And through our theater and school programs, theater professionals like these and our seminar panels go directly into the classrooms to work with and talk to students about working in the theater. In addition, we have our hospital <coughs> program, which dates back to World War II and our legendary stage door canteens. Today's version of the program brings talent from Broadway, Off-Broadway, and the cabaret world to entertain patients in hospitals, senior day and nursing facilities, service organizations and child care, and hospice facilities in the New York area, bringing the magic of theater to those who cannot get to the theater themselves. We are proud of the work we do and are delighted with the wonderful working relationship we have with the theatrical community. We are indeed grateful to our members and everyone who makes possible all that the American Theatre Wing does. And so, now let's get back to our seminar on design, which is partly the most important part of the theatre that the audience doesn't see, but which makes it all so magical for us. We have with us now Tish Dates, and we will continue with the discussion on the design seminar. So Tish, would you like to start that right away? Yes. Um, have any of you ever wished that you could go back and change something about a design you've already completed? Well, not so much one individual design, but when I first started bringing sound into Broadway theaters. I, I, I think I would have greatly preferred had I been able to be a little bit uh, more tasteful then. Um, we, we went tried to do it too big, too fast, and we didn't have the quality of equipment and the expertise that's now available to us. So we did, I think, tried to do a little bit too much at the beginning. And, and I think it's led on to the fact that sound has had the opportunity to be criticized by audience members, by, uh, by the critics and the press. Um, and also by the fact that it's gotten bigger than, uh, than the shows itself, where we've, I think some, some of the design elements have lost sight of the fact that it really should sound like it's coming from the performer or the musician, and rather from the affected loudspeakers and things that are placed in the theater. Uh, goes back to the beginning, maybe that designer wasn't there when the set designer laid out the set, so he's forced to put speakers far enough away that it loses the localization. But I think that's the one thing that I probably would have liked to have changed, was to have gone a little bit slower right at the very beginning. Yeah, I think for me, it's becoming more and more a question <coughs> of uh, actually getting to, to the point where you can polish the work enough. Because there's a, there comes a certain point in any production where they, you have to stop. You know, like they, they turn the lights on, you're told that that's, that's it, and then, then you have to come, you know, stand in the back and kind of just watch what you've done. And I, I think at a certain <coughs> point, you just wish you were either faster or had just like that one little bit of extra time to finish those extra two cues that you weren't quite as good as you would hope that they would be. Have you ever gone back after an opening and changed a design element? When we do different companies, I mean, things changed, obviously, from the time we did Evita in London at the very beginning until we brought, did it in America. So, yes, you were able to see what you did in the first place, and then hopefully the improvements you've added uh, were worthwhile. Um, going back after a show is already open or running for a while in one location uh, is usually not really pleasing to the producer. Mm -hmm. uh, except <laughs> for a 
Something that is unfortunately becoming more common is when you're asked to come back to the show that's been open six months or nine months and reduce the running expenses, mm -hmm. uh, which is something I, I have a hard time with. I, I think if you're, if you're running the show, advertising under the reviews you got on one situation to, to cut back your production values, I think, is not, uh, not right, not correct. You know, I lost a job doing something like that. Uh, I read the script, talked to the uh, producer, and I said, you know, it's a one-set show, but you've got this one little scene here, which is just a one-joke scene. If you can get that joke and work it into the other set, you're going to cut that little set out anyway. When you tour this show, if it's successful, you're going to have a tour of one setter. You're not going to have this two-setter just for that joke. Well, he didn't want to hear any more from me. So I didn't do the job, and they did the show, and it was successful, and then they toured it and didn't do that little scene. But this sort of sounds like I told you so-ism. But uh, sometimes... You take a, uh, remember there was a six-set six show, and I put it into one set with the director. Then it's wonderful because you see the stage directions. The stage directions instruct you what to do, what you have done. Whereas the initial stage direction said, well, it's six scenes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the playwright designed the show, right? <laughs> As a producer, I've had a chance to redo shows that were successful that we had done once before. And in every case, they weren't as good. We thought they'd be better because we had experience, we saw our mistakes. They were never as good. Really? And when I was a, I, I call myself a little boy, when I was a kid and coming into New York, I met a man named Paul Chelichev, Pavel. Of course. How he do you feel about sound, the thing that's happening today and the synchronization of, of, in the theater? Where, do you, where does sound come into that? And our sound engineers. Well, you know, I'll tell you something as well. When I go to the theater, I, I fall instantly asleep. So I'm really no judge. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the angel of sleep, a, after all those productions, all those hours and days in the dark theater, I can't stay awake at theater anymore. My wife takes me. We sit there and I fall asleep. She tells me what it was about. And uh, <laughs> so I'm no judge. <laughs> but I want to say that Paul Chelichev said to me, you know, kid, he said, or youngster, whatever you call me, the dream and the reality are no different. Don't try to catch a dream again. Hmm. And so that's why I don't like revivals. Mm -hmm. David, as a producer, how did you deal with your own designers? Let's hear from you from the opposite perspective. <coughs> well, you never know who's going to be terribly valuable to a continuing long... I produced a, a theater company that ran for 35 years. And we've been to not five, not six, but seven continents. Get that. Mm. The most valuable person on my team was the costume designer. I'm talking about Fred Volpel. Not simply because he was a fine, fine designer and understood the needs of repertoire and budgets and so forth. He certainly can. He can make everyone cry. But because Fred would read the play and give everybody else a real drubbing on what the devil it was about. You'd sit there with Fred... It sometimes seemed like root canal work. But he'd say, come on, what, what is, who is it? Well, what do you expect of this, this, this character? And the director suddenly realized he had no idea what, he, what, what was going on. Why That's is he curse. different than him? Why do you want him this way? <laughs> and it could have been the lighting designer, it could have been the set designer, but it happened to be Fred, who read the plays in this way and challenged us all on what 
every character meant? Well, I tell you something. Very recently, I had a dialogue with a director who was going to do a new play, and the producer was present, the money person was present, uh, the line producer was pre present. It was a little bit of an audience, and I was, uh, it was me to meet the director. And I said, well, I'm not going to meet him unless I've read the script, because it's not a personality test. Uh, so I read the script, and I got there, and he, they started asking me questions. Well, I don't like to make decisions that quickly. I have to think about it. So I asked the director a question, like, what, how much money does this guy make a week? And he very, very, and I went right for it, because he was going for my jugular, and I, I was a little testy about it, and, and he very much resented it. He didn't want to be pinned down, and I didn't want to be pinned down. And that was the first time that happened. The, the, the costume designer always has that. They, there's millions of questions that come into your mind. Where did those shoes come from? Does his mother do his laundry? Blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. It goes on forever. <laughs> and um, it, it, was, it is often resented. Remember when we started, Anne, years ago? We're about the same generation. And before all these, law before all these lawsuits, and you could sock people? <laughs> Remember when you just punch him in the nose and it was all right? Yeah? Very <laughs> Where do costumes, where are costumes made now? There used to be Eves and Brooke Brothers. Are there organizations like Certainly. that now? Are Certainly. there costumes? Absolutely. Where? <coughs> here in the oh, East? Here in the East, in Rome, in London, in California, in New York. Yes. There, there, are, there are the Absolutely. Eves and the Brooks. And, uh, well, Eves and Brooks have combined. That's one company. Great rental houses are not in this city. There is not a great rental house. How much rental is being done in, in shows? Well, it, you would do it if it were here. It isn't here. Mm -hmm. um, can, I, can I jump in here? There's something I've been dying to ask Michael. Um, at the end of WIT, there's this incredible lighting effect that you achieve. That it, there's a blazing ethereal light on the Vivian Baring character who's dying of, of cancer. It, it, it's an unusual lighting effect on someone who's dying, and um, particularly because you, you create this luminescence around her naked body. How did you come up with that design effect? Well, <coughs> it basically came about from the first meeting that I had with the director. I went over to his house, and he had the... Mm -hmm. uh, little model, you know, the, the initial model sitting there, and um, he was showing me what the set designer had come up with and said, you know, this last moment of the show, can she be really bright? And I said, okay. And then so we continued talking for a few more minutes, and then we got through a few scenes, and then he said, can she be really, really bright? And I said, okay. <laughs> and then about right, right as the meeting was ending and we were shaking hands and, and leaving, she, he said, I want her to be really bright. And so I think after the third repetition... <laughs> <laughs> yes, I get it. <laughs> You're not that slow a learner. <laughs> but but it, it's, it just sort of uh, led me to think that I had to do something extraordinary. Like, just not, uh -huh. not, not just pull whatever was in, you know, the inventory and stick it up in the air, but really think about how to really push it a little bit. 
It's a transcendent effect appropriate for somebody who has specialized in death, be not proud. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's great. Michael, how, how oblique can a director be in giving you a wish? Uh, they can be very passive about it. And then you have to, you have to really sit there and think, now, what, did, what exactly did they just ask me to do? And so you, you have to sit there and sort of translate their intent. And if they're not very forceful personalities, then you have to sort of supply that mm -hmm. for them, I think. That, that's almost the case when, with every one of our disciplines, isn't it? That you, you really have to hear through the words to what it is they really want or what, what it is you think they want. And sometimes, well, especially in the case of lighting, they don't necessarily know. Because I, th I think lighting is sometimes more difficult to talk about because you can't grab it or look at it or show somebody a magazine picture mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the time what you're doing is you're showing them what you think they want to see. And then that's the basis to start a conversation about that's not quite right, or we need to modify it this way, or that's exactly the opposite. I'd rather do this. And, then, and it's, it's more of just a way of having a conversation, too. I get this all the time. It's, uh, it's what I call the... I know exactly what I want, and when you show it to me, I will <laughs> tell you. <laughs> and by the way, how much does that cost? <laughs> <laughs> On that note, I'm going to have to bring this to a close. And thank you so much for all of your caring and, and knowledge that you have shared with us as to what makes, for me and for almost everybody else that goes to the theater, the true magic in the theater, making it all come alive by what you have created, the design team of, of the Broadway or Off-Broadway and Off-Off-Broadway Theater, the live theater. You make it all come alive for us. And thank you so much for being on this panel of the American Theater Wing Seminar on Working in the Theater, which is coming to you from the Graduate Center of the new University of New York. Thank you so much for being here.